Hello, everyone. You may have noticed that it's been a while since Rad Scientist has been in your feeds, and that's because I had something important I had to get done. Uh, here's my family and friends awaiting some news. Here she comes. Okay, Spence is killing us. That moment of truth. I'm a doctor! Yeah, so that was me <laughs> celebrating uh, my successful defense of my PhD. I had to defend it over Zoom, which in the end turned out to be a good thing because my cat could make it, and I think he was proud of me. And as soon as I graduated, I started producing uh, work on season three, and I brought on an assistant producer, and I want to introduce you to her because she's going to pop in here and there helping me present this season. Ikran, are you there? Hiya. Can you introduce yourself? Totally. Um, to start off, my name is Ikran Ibrahim. I'm a Somali-American and a native San Diegan, and I'm currently a rising senior here at UCSD studying biochem and cell bio. Nice. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to like pop you some questions, get people uh, to know you a little better. Uh, favorite mode of transportation? Has to be the four-wheeled skateboarding. I enjoy it so much. True San Diegan. Mm -hmm. um, coolest research you've done? Uh, definitely has to be some mass spec instrumentation within the Prather Lab on campus. Oh, cool. Aspirations? Currently, and I'm trying to stay stagnant with this, uh, attending a MD-PhD program. Wait, like stagnant, like, you mean steady? I want to stick with it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I want to stick with it. <laughs> and how did we meet? Uh, I, if my memory best serves me, I asked you to coffee about a year ago, trying to get a better understanding of how uh, podcasting goes. Man, do you, do you remember what it's like to have coffee inside a cafe? You remember when that was actually a thing to do? No, sadly. Sadly, I cannot fully remember how joyous things were pre-COVID-19. <laughs> and really, the circumstances of this time is what drove the idea for season three. Um, for one, there was this pandemic happening that was is disproportionately affecting people of color. Um, and secondly, a social movement was brewing in response to the many senseless police shootings of black people. Um, and it was a reckoning for many white people, like myself, um, who had been more on the sidelines of social justice, um, complicit with the status quo that ultimately benefits us. Unfortunately, this isn't so much of a reckoning for me and my black peers. Yeah. We've seen this happen over and over again, but at the same time, it does seem to be opening up a lot more conversations about racism in realms where they haven't happened as much before, like within academia. For instance, there's the hashtag Black in the Ivory, where a lot of black academics, black academics, have been coming together and sharing their firsthand experiences of racism within the ivory towers. Yeah. Um, we like to think of science as not being biased, right? Like because our methods themselves are meant to help us get to the truth without bias, that the endeavor itself, the institution of science, and thus the scientists, um, are also without bias. Right, but at the end of the day, who gets to do the science? Who decides what we study and how we study it? Humans are, at the base, the practitioners of science, and humans are biased, whether conscious of it or not. It doesn't take a deep dive into the history of science to see the ways in which science was sometimes used to justify racism 
and to use black and brown folks as unwilling or unwitting test subjects. Take the Tuskegee syphilis study, Henrietta Lacks, experiments done on black slaves by the father of modern gynecology, as he unfortunately called himself sometimes. Yeah, but some may say, well, that was the past. Uh, we don't do those kinds of things anymore. You would hope, but this is still happening today. For instance, science that conflates genetic differences with social inequalities are still being published. Even more than that are all the studies that might not even happen because black folks aren't represented equally in the sciences. They don't get to use the power of science to study the things that they, that we care about. So this season, we're going to hear from black scientists at different stages in their careers. They study bacteria, bugs, botany, birds, brains, things that start with B. Loving the alliteration, love it. We are going to talk about their science, but also about what it's been like being black in largely white academic spaces, experiences that have made some of them either question their future in science and some that may have even contributed to them leaving academia. Yeah, um, and we don't just wanna hear their stories. We want to better understand how racism affects the lack of representation of black scientists. So the last episode will be looking at why STEM isn't recruiting and retaining black folks and how we can proceed to make science more equitable. Wowza. We, we've been talking for a hot sec there, Margo. Maybe <laughs> we should get to our first rad scientist. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, Ikran. All right, let's do this. Today's rad scientist is Melanie Vaughn, an Afro-Latina who realized in college that science was for her. Working at a university, being a professor, all of that sounds awesome. But she found the lack of scientists who looked like her both challenging and disheartening. I don't want to be the first or second Black woman to do anything in 2020. Stick around because this is Rad Scientist. <laughs> KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Melanie Vaughn's journey as a scientist begins, as many of ours does, with the question, why? I just always really wanted to understand why do some people struggle with certain aspects of their behavior, whether it's like compulsive behaviors or uh, intrusive thoughts and obsessions or just depressive behaviors. Those were behaviors that she observed in her family. I think growing up it was a lot of just, you know, oh, my mom is like tired all the time and doesn't want to leave her room. and doesn't want to eat or you know my dad like has these bursts of you know like aggression or anxiety and I don't really understand like what is triggering him or what's wrong with him. Her dad was diagnosed with PTSD from his time in the military. Her mom was experiencing bouts of depression which Melanie would later experience firsthand and her brother was having trouble as well. I always knew my brother was sensitive to certain things, like loud sounds. My brother didn't like going places. He didn't really like change. And he had some difficulties in school that I just didn't really understand. But my parents always told me that I had to look out for my brother because there were just certain things that I was better at. Like, I just kind of grasped things easier. He was diagnosed with autism in elementary school. 
it only added to Melanie's curiosity about the brain and behavior. Like, why things were so much more difficult for him, or why we were so different, even though we were siblings. And I experienced the world one way, and he experiences the world in a very different way. But she didn't really know what to do with her curiosity until she got to college at Harvard. I didn't even really know that doing research was possible for someone like me. She landed an internship sophomore year to go to Spain and do research on anxiety disorders. And it was a watershed moment for her. It was unlike any work she had done before. I've worked a couple different kinds of jobs in my life. I've been a bartender. I've worked in retail. I even worked as like a janitor for the school for a bit. But I never was excited to get out of bed and go to work the way that I was when I was living in Spain and knew that when I got to my job, I would be doing actual scientific research that might one day help somebody. When she returned from her magical summer abroad, she immediately joined a lab at Harvard that was studying the very thing her brother was diagnosed with. And she was studying a strange phenomenon that had been reported in autistic people, the fever effect. So it's been self-reported by parents and by people with autism for many, many years. People on the autism spectrum, when they developed a fever, about 20% of the time, they saw a reduction in their autism-related symptoms. So no matter how high the fever was or whether the children were sick with bacteria or viral infections, you saw the same kind of symptom reduction, which is crazy and not very well understood. Melanie wanted to understand why this might be happening. And a lot of times when you want to get to the nitty gritty of a disease and look inside the brain, you can't really use human brains. You have to use animal models like mice. But how do you even go about studying something like autism in a mouse? Obviously, you can't really give a mouse autism in the way that a human has autism per se. But what we try to do is imitate autism-linked genes in these mice. And then we look for behaviors that are similar to or may in part replicate what we observe in the human population. So Melanie worked with three different kinds of mutated mice and saw similar things between them, things that are reminiscent of autism symptoms. They just did not prefer to be around other mice, even if in terms of fighting or just like interacting at all, they just didn't touch each other. Whereas in normal wild type mice, you usually see that when you put two of them in the cage, especially two males, the first thing they want to do is sniff each other, check, check the other mouse out, and then sometimes they do attack, obviously. So yes, the mice seem to display some autism-like behaviors, and that's a good first step. The next question was, would the autism-like behaviors go away with a fever, just like had been observed in some humans? And to answer that, Melanie would induce fevers in the mice by injecting a non-lethal foreign agent. What you get is a robust immune response. Fever, lethargy. So you have these mice before fever hanging out on opposite sides of the cages, avoiding other mice. Give them an injection, wait till a fever develops, and see what happens. And what Melanie saw was a dramatic shift in behavior. Increased like sniffing, chasing each other around. In some cases, they would actually cuddle together and like sleep next to each other. And this was while they had a fever. So they were also sick. 
we were pretty excited about the social behavior changes because this is obviously, this is one of the main components of autism suspension disorder. So we then turned to try and see what's really going on in the brain during these fevers. And what we found was really cool. It has to do with a part of the brain called the hypothalamus that is known to be important for regulating all sorts of bodily functions, including immunity. The weird part was that some of the brain cells located in the hypothalamus responsible for kicking off the immune response were also releasing a special chemical, a substance that is sometimes reductively referred to as the love molecule. Oxytocin, it kind of doesn't make sense. So we decided to look into that. Yeah, it turned out that this oxytocin released in the hypothalamus could explain the increase in sociability they saw in those autism mouse models when they gave them fevers. Obviously, we can't just go around giving children with autism fevers all the time, but potentially, if you're able to activate these oxytocin cells without actually needing a robust immune response, that could be one way that some of these findings might be able to be used in humans. Because as of right now, there is no FDA-approved uh, medication to treat autism. Apart from being a super interesting research finding that has translational potential, and for a disease so close to Melanie's heart, it really solidified Melanie's identity as a scientist. I realized that I really could do this, and I could be a scientist, and I was a good one. All right, I'm back here again with Ikran, assistant producer. Hi. Uh, what did you think about Melanie's transition into science? Did it like resonate with you at all? Did you have like a similar kind of like come to moment where you're like, I need to do science. This is this is my life now. Absolutely. Mine hit me sometime sophomore year after being crushed by the Gen Chem series and the O Chem series. But after my first A on a midterm, I was like, nah, I. I can do this. This this is something that I can do. And like, here you are. You're like about to graduate in in a year. Just a couple more courses. Yeah. Well, we'll hear what happens next to Melanie after she graduates uh, after we take a short break. Oh, and stick around till the end of the episode for a vocab lesson from me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Okay, so Melanie, coming off of this awesome undergraduate research experience, was gung-ho about science, but grad school seemed out of her reach at first, mostly for financial reasons. It wasn't until I was actually talking to people in the lab that had PhDs that I realized that you actually get paid to go to graduate school and you don't pay them and you get a stipend and it's okay and I'd be able to survive. So the next step was applications and interviews. And she saw a pattern at the universities that she visited. They were lacking in diversity to say the least. A lot of the programs I didn't find anyone that really looked like me. Her alma mater tried recruiting her to the program with a less than appealing pitch. I was actually told that uh, I would be the second black woman ever 
to go to the Harvard Neuroscience Graduate Program. I don't want to be the first or second Black woman to do anything in 2020. While obviously breaking those barriers and being a trailblazer at that level is important and someone needs to do that, I just felt like the burden of obtaining a PhD as a Black woman in academia is hard enough without me being the kind of token diversity that they think is going to come in and change their program. In the end, she chose the UC San Diego Neuroscience Graduate Program. Full disclosure, that's the program I just graduated from. And the vibe that she got from San Diego itself played a big role in her decision. I found that UCSD's campus was a lot more diverse. Probably in part by the location, being in somewhere like San Diego where there's a huge immigrant community, I felt a lot more comfortable walking around the streets of San Diego than I did in Boston. And also the people that I met that were already in the program just seemed a lot happier with their experiences, especially the people of color that were in the program. The reality of being in the program, however, was a bit different, mostly having to do with one incident. In one of my classes that the first years all have to take, one of the professors who was giving a lecture made several racist comments that were anti-Black and anti-Asian in nature. And the way that he was framing these comments was in an almost scientific way, which was very upsetting, to say the least. I think that that kind of behavior and that kind of rhetoric should never be accepted. And I was extremely disappointed with the initial response that the program had when me and a couple other students of color went and talked to the administration about what had happened. We weren't really met with the kind of support that we needed. It was pretty upsetting for many of the students. They pushed back and asked the administration to take a firmer stance on what happened. And this time, they were met with more support. After those events have occurred, I have noticed a shift in the faculty and the administration. And a lot more has been done to listen to the students of color. And I've been able to push for a lot of reforms and changes to the neuroscience program that I think were really necessary. There were many meetings discussing how to prevent issues like this happening in the future. And the students and administration came up with two main commitments. The first was a climate statement written by students and administration that can be signed and will appear on the program website. The second was a commitment to make a new hire for the department, a director of graduate student diversity, recruitment, advocacy, and retention, who would have many roles. Like leading racial bias and sensitivity training for all faculty and students, organizing something where students of color who face bias or discrimination or harassment can go and either anonymously or at whatever level they feel comfortable actually report to someone who can then give them the resources they need to address it. To be clear, there is an office at UCSD that handles reports for harassment and discrimination, but their definitions only allow for rather severe forms of behavior like, oh, I didn't get hired because I'm a certain skin color, things like that. But we all know that that is not where racism stops. Racism is also the comments that occur when you're in lab and someone is like touching your hair or someone makes a comment about your religion or your sexuality and things like that. 
things like that, they really hurt the racial climate. While Melanie and other graduate students have been able to push for change in the neuroscience graduate school, it couldn't happen without the director and assistant director of the program being on board. And the changes that they made likely aren't ones that the directors would have thought of themselves. You have students of color, but you have no one with power that is of color. When you have such a power imbalance, it becomes difficult to enact any sort of change within the community because the voices who are calling for change are at the bottom of the totem pole. If my administration did not think that racism was an issue, then no matter how many protests I hold or how many speeches I give or how many petitions I sign, I cannot accomplish these things without having a white ally. Because at the end of the day, it's not up to me. If the white people in charge decide it's not important to them, then nothing gets done. And that's a big problem with many academic institutions. The people at the top are overwhelmingly white. Part of the way that we're going to enact real change is by getting black women, black men, indigenous people, Afro-Latinas, indigenous Latinas, actually in charge of some of these programs and give the power to the people who are experiencing the oppression the most. And one day that could be Melanie. She could be the professor or director that enacts those changes. But she isn't sure if in the end, the cost of getting there is worth it. Working at a university, being a professor, all of that sounds awesome. Hopefully, like, I'd be able to have some power. I'd be able to help younger students like myself get involved and, like, learn about science and see themselves in science. But, oh, I don't know. The road to academia is extremely difficult for people that look like me. And I am hyper aware of that. I'm not sure if dedicating so many years of my life to an academic institution that doesn't care about me is the correct way for me to go. All of this work that the neuroscience program has been doing to change the culture and the systems in place started months before the recent protests sparked by the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmed Arbery, and countless others. And with these events and the ensuing outcry from protesters came equal measures of trauma, frustration, and tentative hope. I think that it has inspired some more people to help in that change and to reach out and see what they can do, which I appreciate. But at the same time, as a Black person, seeing these events and these protests and taking a part in these protests is extremely traumatic. And it affects every aspect of your life. To see someone that looks like you, to see someone that looks like your father, your brother, your tias, your tios, your primos, on TV being murdered, over and over again, 
It shouldn't take such such in-your-face instances of violence against Black people for you to have empathy for them. I'm just tired all the time. I'm tired, I'm sad, and I'm angry. This year has been a tough one for Melanie. First year of graduate school is stressful enough without being compounded by issues of racism and, of course, COVID-19. But she has been taking the extra time and space that the lockdown has afforded her to do something that refuels her and makes her feel connected with her heritage. She puts paint to canvas, recreating the Panamanian flag or poyera, which are ruffled skirts and blouses that Panamanian women wear during festivities. For me, being a Panamanian is something that I have the most pride in. And being a Black Panamanian specifically is a great source of pride for me. And when I paint these pieces about my country, I feel connected to my ancestors and I feel connected to my culture. I'm a descendant of slavery. And to think about the things that my ancestors went through and the things that they were able to survive, it gives me strength sometimes to know that those ancestors are still with me and they had an incredible amount of resiliency and an incredible amount of strength and they endured something no one should ever have to go through. And I feel like sometimes through my paintings, I'm able to connect with them more. Whenever I'm feeling like hopeless or sad or like I can't do it anymore, I will talk to them and just sit with them. I'll light a candle and just speak to them. And I know that their spirits hear me and I know that their spirits are able to heal me and they're able to comfort me because I always feel better after I do it. That's it for this episode of Rad Scientist. But before we go, here's a new segment we're going to do where Ikran schools you with a vocab lesson. Here's a word you need to know today with Ikran Ibrahim. The word you need to know is minority tax, also known as cultural tax. This is a term used to denote the tax of extra and typically uncompensated responsibilities and expectations placed on minority faculty, staff, and students. This is used as a solution to achieve more diversity within that institution. Such individuals are still expected to fulfill their original roles to the T amongst these added responsibilities. That's all, folks. Thanks for listening. Rad Scientist is produced and written by me, Margot Wall. The assistant producer is Ikran Ibrahim, and Elisa Barba is the editor. Our theme guitar riff is by Grant Fisher, logo by Kyle Fisher, no relation. At KPBS, Emily Jankowski is technical director. Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator. Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager. And John Decker is director of programming. Music for this episode was by Poddington Bear and Blue Note Sessions. This show is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore Local Content Fund. Until next episode, stay rad. On the next episode, you'll meet Daryl Brown. I am a black engineering researcher. There, I can't just be an engineering researcher because everything that I do and experience will be through that lens. Coming in two weeks. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.